From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And yes, I'm back. So good news, bad news, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, we're, we're back to the uh, the typical lineup here for extra credit. I did want to thank uh, our friend James Dawson at Boise State Public Radio for uh, for sitting in um, and providing a, a brief up, upgrade and content. But uh, I'm back again. So good to talk to you. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you're back. And we'll zero in this week a little bit more into the nuts and bolts on education-specific policy. Last week, we kind of took a step back, as you know, uh, but let's really get into education hot and heavy because there's three or four big topics. There was quite a bit of education policy that came down from from the U.S. Supreme Court to the governor's office and the state board to the Boise School District. I mean, we don't have to get to here. Yeah. Let's start with a topic that I know is on everybody's mind, fall reopening, at least as it relates to K-12 public schools in Idaho. Um, Some big news this week. Yeah. And you you kind of broke it down that uh, the governor has established two committees that are going to look at the reopening, but a lot of the decisions are are really going to be deferred to the locals. That was the big takeaway uh, from my interview with State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield. To me, that was the big story this week coming into focus really for the first time that the state is going to let local school boards, local school districts make the decisions for reopening in the fall. Uh, That's a departure from the spring and we can get into a little bit about how this is going to be different. But Wednesday was a big day. As you said, Governor Little announced the formation of those two new committees that will look at a return to school in the fall. One of them is going to be a general return to school in the fall committee. The other will look at, they're calling it the digital divide, Mm -hmm. uh, but that's basically looking at the issues and the struggles that were documented this spring with the switch to remote learning and online learning. And so that committee may be tackling things like devices for students uh, reliable internet connectivity and things of those nature. But the important detail here to keep in mind, those committees are going to kind of try to work really quickly, but the the plans and the guidance that they come up with is going to be informational in nature. It's really going to be up to the local school boards to make these decisions about reopening in their communities. Uh, Debbie Critchfield, the president of the State Board of Education, said she hopes that the information... Governor Little's two committees come up with is instructional in nature. She hopes it supports the locals as they make these decisions. Uh, But she said local school boards can go ahead and start developing their plans. And in a minute, we'll get to one of the state's largest districts has already done that. But uh, Critchfield said local school districts should go ahead, start developing those plans. No need to wait for the state. And when the state does issue its guidance, whether it's at the end of June or, or whenever, the local plans don't have to align with that. So I'm not expecting a big, long, 100-page report from these committees. I'm not expecting schematics where you will place this desk here and this desk here. Uh, This is how you're going to do this, that, and the other. I think it's going to be more sharing best practices and guidance. But when I talked to Debbie, I said, so that means that, you know, districts across the state will likely be taking different approaches, and you could have a district that is going to say, we want a traditional, as traditional as possible, return in the fall. 
with no social distancing, no masks, no nothing like that, it, would that be allowed under the state board's direction here? And, and Debbie said, yeah, they're going to be empowered to make their own decisions. In her mind, the word trustee is never meant more than it does right now uh, in terms of they're a trustee of their local school district elected by their local patrons uh, acting on the will of the community. But it's it's quite a departure from the spring where there was a statewide soft closure, Kevin, that you covered where uh, there were conditions that were going to be put on reopening, one of which would have had to be that you need approval from the local public health departments. The state yeah, board I, then adopted I, Governor Brad Little's reopening plans, which included limits on group sizes. At this point, right now, where things stand, June 19th, uh, there will not be those added checklists and steps that school districts have to take. It'll be up to them at the local level on their own. That's how we're going to be going forward. One of the big developments here in this plan is that school districts and charters will be able to uh, make this decision without having to uh, get approval from the, the local health district. And this is something I, I wrote about a few weeks back. Uh, the West Side School District in the southeast corner of the state, uh, there's some pushback from the superintendent, uh, Spencer Barzi, who, who is sitting on yeah. uh, one of these committees. His, his frustration was that uh, his elected trustees, his district's elected trustees, wanted to reopen. Uh, case numbers were, were pretty much non-existent in, in their area at the time. Uh, but the local health district uh, didn't go along with the plan, so it, it didn't happen. That's all going to be different here in the fall, and you know it's going to be potentially a, a patchwork because even within the same health district, one district may take a very different approach, one charter may take a different approach. It's really going to be uh, school by school, or at least district by district uh, decision making process. So you know what happens. Just within Canyon County, for example, yeah. where you've got you know multiple school districts, nine school districts, I believe, it could be very different. What one district in Canyon County does could be very different than what uh, another district in Canyon County does, neighboring district. Um, so it's going to be something we're going to have to watch very closely. And you know, parents, uh, you're going to have to watch very closely and see what what goes down at the, the local level because those decisions are going to be made at the local level, and you know we will. We will do our best to put it all in context and try to get you as much information as possible. But you know, this could be this could be a, a, a hodgepodge. Yeah, and I'm going to be on Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television this weekend talking about the right. issue of reopening. So if you want to check that out, uh, it'll be available at IdahoPTV.org, and it will also be broadcast on Idaho Public Television Friday evening, Sunday morning, those kinds of things. But one of the things that I'm getting a sense is, well, a few questions to answer right off the bat. If you're a parent or a teacher and you have questions about what the fall is going to look like, you know, as of this week, you want to check with your local school board or your local superintendent or your local principal. No need to wait on the state for guidance. So if you're a parent wondering what in the heck is going on, check with your local school district. That's the answer. But uh, just a point that you made a couple of minutes ago, Kevin, I think it's absolutely going to be a patchwork of plans that from county to county and even within the same county, as you pointed out, it's going to be different. And one thing that I'm thinking about, I did an interview with the uh, 
spokesperson for the West Ada School District, for the state's largest school district based on enrollment. And nothing is finalized here yet, but they're contemplating the need to maybe have blended learning. And I don't think they'll be the only district that has to go with this approach. But if blended learning is a new term, simply what that means is some combination of in-person learning at the physical school building coupled with distance or remote learning like online learning. And the reason being in school districts like West Ada, where facilities and capacity have already been an issue, they're taking a hard look at if social distancing requirements are still in place and if their board decides to adhere to social distancing requirements, would it even be possible to have 28, 30, 32 kids and a teacher and a couple of classroom aides all present in one typical classroom? And so they're looking at maybe having return to school in smaller groups, maybe have kids go every other day, maybe have like an A block and a B block, like morning and afternoon. That's not official. That's not a done deal. But if social distancing is the reality, there are districts that we know about, such as West Ada, such as Twin Falls, such as Bonneville, where facilities and space has already been at a premium. And if these districts want to incorporate social distancing guidelines going forward with their reopening plans, something might have to give. Uh, And so that's going to be interesting. Whereas you look at some of the smaller districts, some of the rural districts um, where class sizes are smaller, maybe some of the areas where they do not have, I I think there's still four or five counties, um, you know, very remote, sparsely populated counties, but four or five counties nonetheless, where as of today, there are no confirmed cases of the coronavirus yet. And so their reopening plans may look more traditional. Um, But that's just to say that there's a long ways to go. Uh, it's going to be made at the local level, and so what happens in West Side is is not going to be what happens in West Ada. And I think the state's recognizing that, but they're also turning over the decision to a group of school trustees who are all volunteers, who don't have to have any kind of required training or experience to get on school boards. And we know some districts have a hard time filling school board uh, positions Mm -hmm. and that people don't always want to run. And so it's the ultimate exercise of local control, but it's an interesting step politically because it's such a departure from the spring. What do you think, Kevin? That was kind of a lot to digest, but what what are you picking up on? I think it all underscores why you've also got a committee that's looking at the digital divide. Yeah. I think there are two things that are pretty clear at this point. Um, the first is that the move to remote learning and the, the move to uh, virtual learning, online learning has been different uh, from district to district, yeah. from school to school. Some districts and charters were better prepared to make that transition. Uh, others have struggled more. And you know, looking at that digital divide and trying to figure out where the need is, is greatest and where the deficiencies are, are maybe you know, greater, I think that makes a lot of sense, especially because of another thing we know, um, and we're seeing right now, the, the spread of the coronavirus hasn't stopped, and it's, it's sporadic. I mean, just looking at the numbers that we've seen unfold in recent days, you, you have an outbreak in Boise that's tied to uh, some downtown bars, so you have numbers increasing 
in Ada County, you have numbers that have been flat in other communities. Uh, overall, you're seeing some, some fairly significant increases in, in case numbers uh, in recent days, but it's not the same in every community. It probably won't be the same in every community when uh, the school year starts. So you look at it realistically, there are going to be some schools that are gonna to have to approach reopening differently. You know, Not every school in the state is going to be able to reopen and stay open in the same way if the coronavirus uh, continues to spread in pockets. Some communities are gonna to have to respond to this thing differently. I, I, think that's, I, I think that's fair to assume and I think that's uh, fair to expect. So yeah, I, the school are gonna to have to respond to it. And I think uh, the discussion of the digital divide is uh, part of that conversation because you know I, I'm here to tell you I, I would be stunned if we didn't have some schools that have to go back to some sort of a blended learning or some sort of uh, you know you know soft closure or temporary closure at some point during the school year next year. I, I wish it were otherwise. I just can't see how it's gonna gonna happen. Yeah, and and let's stay just right on that topic for just another two minutes before we move on. But I think that that's right. We know from parent surveys that parents want a traditional return in the fall. We know school administrators all over the state want a traditional return. We know Governor Little wants a traditional return, and they're hoping for that. But what we're seeing take place is while they're hoping for that, at the state level, they're planning for blended learning. That's where they're requesting to invest some stimulus dollars. They're looking at online learning management systems, so they're hoping for the traditional return, but planning for the possibility or perhaps uh, a likelihood of some level of remote learning. And we already right. saw it's, it's that. The adage about how hope is not a strategy. Yeah, and yeah. We're all hoping for a return to normal, but but we're planning planning for a dynamic, planning for a situation that may change rapidly. And we've already seen the state's second largest school district the Boise School District move ahead with its local reopening plan. Boise serves about 25,500 students. It's the second largest state. Just on Thursday of this week, it approved reopening plans to start school in the fall, August 17th, to have instruction available at every Boise School District building Monday through Friday. But a key component of Boise's plan is giving families the option that their students, and this is totally new, but giving families the option that their student could choose to enroll in the fall to attend classes in person, or they could choose to enroll in the fall to in attend entirely online. And so that's the first large district coming forward with a plan, uh, but it looks like that fits within the state board's guidance to go ahead and start developing these local plans. And Boise's plan is kind of a hybrid plan, a couple different options there. Um, and so that's the first, that's the first large district to come out and say, here's what we're looking at. They got parent feedback. They released a draft plan earlier this month. The school board looked at it. Parents weighed in, uh, the news media publicized it. And, and, and here we are. Uh, the first large district is, is moving forward. And, and even they realize, and they put in their plans that, you know, this is based on what we know right now and a lot could change. And we still are waiting on uh, specific guidance about athletics and activities, group activities, and individual school building plans. And so this is very much the mile high 
district level philosophy and the details will be filled in later. Uh, but we're in we're in late June already and and so August isn't that far off. It, it isn't that far off and yet two months so much can change. Yeah. You know, in terms of you know what's going on on the ground, what's going on with this virus, what's going on with community spread is impossible to predict right now. I mean, you know, what we're seeing right now in June you know, in Boise and in other communities around the state, it, it may be a very different environment. It may be a very different outbreak in August and will undoubtedly change over the course of time during the course of the school year. So, you know, it's a cliche to say that we're in uncharted territory, but we are. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the bottom line and it's not a, a cop-out or an excuse or passing the buck. I think it's just an acknowledgement, um, but it, it's one of our top stories this year. If you want to get caught up, I had a long story on Wednesday at www.idahoednews.org. also want to remind our listeners that if you go to the top of the homepage and click on our coronavirus tab, we have a lot of really interesting features there. We have a timeline. We have all our stories archived. Kevin, you're going through every day and updating numbers by county. On Fridays, you do a trend piece. So if you want to get caught up a little bit more on the latest, um, the homepage is a great place to get caught up. And, and we're going to continue to follow the issue of reopening and the trends and how local districts handle it. Starting next week, I'm going to be covering these new uh, return to school committees that Governor Little announced. The first one gets to work on Monday, and they hope to have some guidance out by June 30th. So that'd be a really quick, just a week and a half turnaround um, but a lot is still going to happen and we're still going to get a lot more information over the next two weeks, especially. Right. I mean, you're going to be following what happens with the state board, what happens with these committees and, you know, your work's cut out for you. You know, you mentioned, uh, our, our tracking of the coronavirus case numbers. We're obviously, we're not the only reporters in the state who sure. are tracking the coronavirus numbers. The reason I do it and the reason we do it is uh, these numbers are going to inform the decisions that are made about uh, public schools, about higher education, and it's going to inform the decisions that parents have to make. And all I would really try to do with this blog, and I post it about six o'clock every Friday night when we get those, those final numbers for the week, is just to look at what happened this week. Because the daily numbers can be really volatile. Oh, know? yeah. So at least looking at a seven-day trend levels it out a little bit. It allows us still to look at some trends in, in real time. And what I'm trying to do is look at, okay, where, where were the numbers last week and where are they now in terms of uh, case numbers, in terms of uh, deaths, in terms of hospitalizations, try to break down some of the county by county numbers uh, for some of the counties that are having uh, larger uh, case numbers, just to kind of say, okay, what happened this week and how does it compare to the previous week? And, you know, how does uh, what's happening in Ada County compare to what's happening in Twin Falls County or Blaine County? Uh, you know, just to, to you know, to kind of try to put this thing into some context, because it is really easy to get caught up in the moment and look at one day's numbers and jump to conclusions. And there are a lot of people who are, who are doing that. And, you know, I, I, there, I think there are a lot of folks in the community who, who will respond to a day's numbers in a very visceral way. I do. I get it. I understand how people, you know, go there. But what we're trying to do as journalists is just 
put it into some some context and try to put it into some perspective and, and allow and allow you to see what's happening over time. Yeah, I think context is the most important thing. And we just had a long discussion this morning before we turned on the microphone. It started in Messenger and then we picked it up in person, but talking about our responsibilities and how we have to put it in context, but how it's extremely important for us to not pass judgment on, you know, what this means or react to, you know, a one day change in numbers. Uh, We just talked about our responsibilities as journalists and to put that context in there and to leave out, you know, any sort of qualification or adjective to describe what may be going on and just really try to stick to the numbers. I really feel like our job is kind of twofold here, and it's not easy. Uh, our job is to to not stoke panic, to not cause undue panic, but it's also not to uh, convey a false sense of hope. It's it's simply to here are the numbers. Here's what's happened in the past week. Here's here's where there's been an increase. Here's where there's been a flattening. Yeah. You know, just you know, put the numbers out in as much detail as possible, and let people. Uh, know, digest the numbers and make decisions accordingly. Yeah. And so folks can look for that, like you said, about six o'clock later today, if you're listening on June 19th, the day we record six o'clock on Fridays, a good chance to check that out. But I do want to shift gears. We had a couple of other really big stories that I want to get to this week. As of June 19th, as of right now, when we record the podcast, we are still waiting on a ruling or an order on the Idaho Supreme Court case. Uh, where Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ibarra has sued the legislature and sued her colleagues on the State Board of Education attempting to block the transfer of funding and personnel when the new budget year starts July 1. Still waiting for a ruling. It could come literally any time, and we're keeping an eye out for that. But in the meantime, you had a really interesting blog this week. It looks like Superintendent Ibarra voted for the budget that she sued to try to block take me back to last week and what happened that was kind of tucked into this eight hour long state board of education meeting and it happened very quickly but what did you find out that's exactly what happened and it is a little bit um, it is a little bit granular but i think it's an interesting development in this dispute between ibarra and the legislature and the state board so during that and you mentioned it was an eight-hour state board meeting. I know you were you were monitoring it. Uh, I was on vacation, and you were monitoring it. But over the course of that eight-hour meeting, one of the things that the state board did, and this is something they do routinely, annually, is they sign off on the budgets uh, for uh, colleges and universities, for career technical education, uh, for Idaho Public Television, which is an offshoot of uh, the state board. Yeah, and they approve the state board's own budget. And what's interesting, of course, about that state board budget is that this year it includes the shift of 18 staffers from the State Department of Education to the state board. It includes the shift of $2.7 million to the state board uh, from SDE. This is literally what Sherry Ibarra has gone to the Supreme Court over. This is the crux of that lawsuit. Uh, She is trying to block that transfer of funds and uh, keep those uh, positions under her jurisdiction. When it came to a vote on the budgets, and there was a single vote on, a, on, on several different budgets, including the state board's budget, the board voted unanimously to sign off on all of these budgets, which means that 
Sharia Bara voted for the state board's budget, which includes that fund transfer that she's fighting in court. And interestingly, the budget documents in the state board packet that all state board members receive and that the public has access to before the meeting begins, the budget materials in that packet specifically call out that this is a change. This is moving $2.7 million. It specifically calls it out. So it's a very clear line item yeah. in, in the spreadsheet. You you can't miss it if you look at the state board's uh, budget and you know on that one page. Or I mean, it's it's right there in black and white. So there's no confusion that this is absolutely the budget and the transfer that was at issue that we had oral arguments a couple of weeks ago. No question that that's what happened. No question that it was a unanimous vote. But there is an open question as to what the superintendent was thinking. And Kevin, you've reached out to the State Department of Education trying to get some more insider clarity. What are you hearing? Nothing. Uh, I have not gotten any kind of explanation from the State Department of Education on that vote. I reached out on Wednesday, which was when I posted this blog. So as of Friday morning, as we record the podcast, we're almost 48 hours in uh, with that request for comment. And I've, I've not heard anything. We will update the story, we'll update the, the blog when we do get some comment. I mean, it, the civics here is, is that, you know, the superintendent could have done any number of things in that meeting to... She could have abstained. If, if she saw that coming, she could have abstained for she that one been. line item. And, and we've seen, she could not that exact thing, but we've seen things yeah. like that before. Right. I mean, there are a lot of things that she could have done. She could have uh, made a motion to ask the board to treat the state board's budget separately from the other budgets that they were voting on, colleges and universities, CTE, public television, break that out because of the lawsuit. She could have then voted against it out of protest uh, over the transfer. That would have been a you know, plausible decision. Uh, she could have then, she could have, instead, she could have abstained from the vote, citing the pending litigation. That would have been a plausible uh, course of action, but to, to vote for this budget when you're writing this budget in the Supreme Court is a head scratcher and we're trying to get answers. And, you know, when we have uh, some clarity, when we have some response, we will, uh, we will post it. All right. I appreciate you staying on top of that. A couple other things I want to get to this week, a real busy week, uh, switching gears from the Idaho Supreme Court to the U S Supreme Court, mm-hmm. a real busy week, a number of, High-profile decisions came down that could affect Idaho. Let's talk about one in particular uh, that relates to DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Uh, Our Sammy Edge uh, had the story, but what was the decision and and, and what might this mean going forward? In essence, what the Supreme Court ruled was that uh, the Trump administration acted improperly in trying to uh, eliminate the DACA program. And DACA is a program that provides... uh, legal protection for uh, for people who uh, were born abroad and, and were brought to the United States. Um, it, it affects about, I want to say about 3,000 Idahoans are, are, have protections under DACA, uh, protections from, from being deported. Uh, this involves students, it involves some, some faculty, uh, it involves some teachers. So there, there are some pretty... Uh, profound implications for education and, and for for students and teachers in Idaho. 
Um, what Sammy Edge's story did is it focused on one Idaho graduate who is now a student at the University of Notre Dame, who was here under DACA and has been watching the court proceedings very closely and, and has been kind of riding an emotional uh, roller coaster waiting for word from the Supreme Court. And that word came down Thursday morning that the 5 4 uh, court decision uh, essentially keeping DACA on the books. So Sammy Edge's story, it's a really good story. It's a must read. Uh, really looking at the, the story and looking at the debate uh, through the eyes of uh, somebody who's uh, directly affected uh, by this policy. So that's definitely something you want to check out. And, you know, this is not an issue that's going to go away. Um, you know, this is something that uh, I'm sure we're going to get up more in the presidential election. Uh, you know, and, and you know, we'll be watching that closely as well. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things Sammy really did beautifully uh, was humanize the story and put a face to it. And that's one of the great challenges that we as journalists face when there's a complicated issue in the news or a controversial issue in the news or late-breaking issue in the news, uh, to humanize it and, and, and talk about how it matters and what it really means at the end of the day. And Sammy did a beautiful job um, yeah. of doing that. And, and, and so I'd, I'd recommend it for that reason as well. No, it's, it's a really good story. It's definitely worth your while. One more big topic though. You can find that story, Sammy's story about the DACA ruling and about the Supreme court ruling at IdahoEdNews.org. One more big topic though. I want to get to uh, Kevin as Yogi Berra might say it's deja vu all over again in the West Ada school district. You had a big, that was the focus of your analysis piece this week. Um, what's going on and, and why why are we going to be heading back to the polls so so quickly in West Ada? Well, just to to recap, uh, the West Ada School District uh, ran a supplemental levy in the primary election and it failed. This was a two-year, $28 million supplemental levy. The school board voted on Monday to put the issue back on the ballot in August. So same levy proposal, same two years, uh, $28 million dollars. If, you know, you know, a, a, again, the, the district is saying that this money is needed to, uh, to you know, keep classroom days intact, keep uh, staff positions whole. What the district is talking about doing right now is uh, trying to get through, even if this levy fails again, uh, the district would use budget reserves to kind of plug in most of the difference. Um, but the district says that that's not a long-term solution. What would be at least a longer-term solution would be to get a two-year levy through and know that that $14 million a year in property taxes is coming in. So we will see that levy back on the ballot in August. Middleton has not yet decided. And Middleton's another school district that had a supplemental levy fail during the primary. Uh, that is a decision that the the board is going to consider uh, over there. The uh, remaining school board members over right, there. The three remaining trustees in that. Uh, Quite a shakeup uh, this in, month. In that embattled school district. Uh, those three trustees will make that decision. Uh, June 29th is when they are scheduled to take up the matter. Administrators are pushing for uh, another election. They want to put this back on the ballot. They're saying that uh, having to cut, and I want to say that theirs was a $3 million levy over two years, Having to make cuts in the budget, it's going to compromise what they can offer. So they want to take another run at it. Now, if this all sounds familiar politically, it, it should be because 
the Idaho House of Representatives passed two different bills this year that would have clamped down on school elections. And the one that's really germane to this topic is one that uh, would have required school districts to run levies and bond issues in May or November. It would have essentially eliminate this August election date that's going to be in play. So, you know, I, I talked to Wendy Horman, uh, the sponsor of that bill, the co-sponsor of that bill, and she has has it ready to go. She has an identical bill ready, ready to present in 2021. She reserves the right to maybe uh, make some modifications in the bill in 2021. But, you know, this is not an issue that's going to go away. I mean, the legislature has, uh, the House especially, has made it clear that they want to clamp down on school elections. I mean, you know, Horman's bill to consolidate those school elections passed the House easily. It didn't get a hearing in the Senate, but it passed the House easily. So, you know, again, this is an issue that I would expect to see come up again at the 2021 legislature. But, you know, short term, we're going to watch and see what happens with West Ada. This is the largest district in the state. This is a significant uh, levy proposal. So we'll be watching that closely. And we'll also be very curious to see what kind of voter turnout we got. Because in the primary, we had big turnout. It, I think it was like 45,000 people voted in that uh, supplemental levy election. That's huge. How many people vote in August? That remains to be seen. Um, when I talked to Eric Exline, the spokesman for West Ada, he said he doesn't think the turnout is going to crater because most of the people who voted in May in that all absentee uh, election that we had requested ballots to be mailed to them for the in August election. Yeah, it was like, I, I don't want to misspeak, but I think it was like 90 percent. Uh... That's what he said. He said that 90 percent of the people who voted by mail in the primary, because you had to, yeah. remember, <laughs> uh, they then checked off the box and said, yes, mail me a ballot if there's an election in August, mail me a ballot for November. So 90% of those people will get ballots in the mail. And, and his contention is, look, if you get the ballot in the mail, you know the election's coming up. That's a reminder. The district is also going to send out a mailer to everybody in the district. So he's saying, hey, you know, let's not assume that the turnout is going to go from 45,000 to you know, next to nothing because uh, the word will get out one way or the other. So that's that remains to be seen, and and you know that may change a little bit of the debate about these uh, these school election dates, the, the August election date. When I talked to Wendy Horman this week, and I bounced that theory off of her, she said, you know, maybe. Oh, well, let's just wait and see. You know, she didn't reject it out of hand, even though she's been pretty outspoken about you know her desire to consolidate these elections. She said, well, you know, let's. They may be right. They may have a point. Let's just see what happens. Yeah, and, and see what happens, we will. I know that that's something that uh, we'll continue uh, to watch this summer. But, but boy, Kevin, that was a week, wasn't it? What happened it summer sure break? sure was. I'm glad I had a chance to rest up a little bit because it, a lot happened this week. And, yeah. Uh, catch up on. We know, at a minimum, we'll be back next week for another new edition of Extra Credit. We've got July 4th right after that. We may take a week off. But we know we will be back next week, and we know next week's going to be busy. I'm going to be following the return to school committee that the governor unveiled. I'm going to be speaking of the legislature and interim legislative committee uh, is going to be getting together. I'm going to be back at the state house on Monday. This is the committee that's going to look at academic standards. This is like a five year yeah. debate. Yeah, hold on, people, you know, legislators are going to talk about academic standards, you know, right. 
seen that before, right? You may have heard that song before. We're going to play it again next week. Uh, yeah, this is a reporter's moment. Legislators talking about academic standards. But, but uh, uh, it's, a, it's obviously it's a serious topic and, and one we've, uh, you know, we've been watching very closely over the past few years and we'll, we'll continue to watch. And, and one that isn't going anywhere. Uh, so I'll be following those meetings uh, next week. Uh, we'll continue to follow and see if there's news out of the Idaho Supreme Court regarding Superintendent Ybarra's lawsuit. That's a major story for us. And we'll continue to follow uh, the trends in the news as we look to reopening in the fall. Yes, we've got our, got our work cut out for us in the summer. Things sometimes slow down in the summer. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen this year. Not this year, but um, that's why we're here. And this is what we love doing. And we always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Kevin, great to have you back this week. Good to be uh, back. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.